0: There, there's this phrase that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, that like laying it on kind of thick, is is sort of what it is. This would be uh, like somebody who's laying it on kind of thick. This most likely for me was was would be something that would have happened when um, we were on a mission trip. Yeah, that's that's uh, this tells you a lot about my high school years. We went on a mission trips. See, as I was feeling with my mic, that's the type of stuff that comes out. I'm going to regret this in a second. Um, It would have been like, hey, we met some girl on the mission trip, and I would go and talk to her, and I would go back to my buddies and they would say, laying it on kind of thick there, huh, Matt? Like a little too eager, a little too interested, a little too. uh, point being is, is this connects to this somehow, is that like Paul in Ephesians always seems to be laying it on pretty thick. That like this passage, particularly at the end of what Joy read about the uh, the four dimensions, the, the height, the width, the length, the width, uh, the depth of what God is doing, I mean, he's just laying it on very much. Um, and, and as I've said before, it's a little bit hard for a preacher at times because you are like, do you want to go into all 18 things that he threw out in 10 verses, or do you want to try and aim for the one overarching message, but the one overarching message is sometimes like God loves you, which is great, but, but I don't have enough, like, I don't know if I can get a lot out of that just by just saying it over and over again. So it's like you dive into what he says, but he says so much in these passages. He says so much of, of the fullness that he's trying to display to the Ephesians, to the, the churches that are receiving sort of this circular letter in, in this area of the ancient world, that he's really sort of pushing it out there. And this is sort of the end of today's section is certainly the second time he did does that. The... the um, the other thing that you sort of like, when you look at what's going on here, is that he kind of takes a break, luckily, at the start of today's section, to talk about um, himself. Now, one of the things I haven't mentioned to this point, but but one of the things that the letter from Ephesians says that Paul is writing from prison. Now, Paul, as we know from the book of Acts and from other sources, is somebody who spent time in prison sort of several times throughout his life, which is at times not particularly reassuring um when i was a youth pastor you know parents would would want me to hang out with their kids and one of their things was like give them morals make them good people make them people capable of of being a good christian and what they meant was like a good person so the idea of becoming captured by christ so much that you would end up in prison multiple times was not on their list of things that i was effectively supposed to do with their children it was not not on the list at all. Uh, there's, there's a well known sort of younger radical today called Shane Hips, or Shane uh, Claiborne. And he'll talk about how, like, you know, when he was in high school, when he was in college, before he really met Jesus, he hung out with the right people and did the right things and studied and spent his money on, on the things that you're supposed to do to be s- successful. And yet when he started hanging out with Jesus, it all went backwards, that, that he started to hang out with the wrong people. Because that's who Christ hangs us, calls us to hang out to, with at times. He started to, to act in a different way in society that just wasn't upwardly mobile or successfully. He kind of flipped the script. And he's like, so most testimonies, they were like, my life was a wreck, and then I met Jesus. He was like, my life was fine, and then I met Jesus. And we have both these things sort of happening for us in, in this sort of passage. Just Paul is this one who sort of has found himself in prison. But the phrase he uses at the beginning here is that he's a prisoner for Christ, which is an interesting way that Paul seems to take everything that you can do to him and turn it. There's in another letter he's writing to, to the people that have sort of surrounded him in a different church, and he says, you know, look, if they kill me, I get to be with God. If they don't kill me, then I get to be free to preach the gospel. And if they just sort of make me suffer and torture with me, then that will bring me greater glory through what God has done. You don't understand the Romans and and their their conundrum with, what do you do with people like this? We kill them, and they're they're motivated by that. We torture them, and they see their torture as becoming sort of more one with their God. And if we let them go, they go back to their sort of rabble-rousing ways. This is a difficult place to be. So what Christ says is, is, while I'm a prisoner of, uh, what Paul is saying is, while I'm a prisoner of Caesar, here's what's really happening. I'm captive to Christ. I'm a prisoner to Christ. Like, he's taking what's happening to him and sort of putting it in this matrix of, like, I, you're not going to win with him. Like, he's he's going to say that all these things are being brought so that this Can be made known that this is sort of my mission, and so he lives as sort of one who's now this prisoner of Christ. He's one who's captured by Christ, and this is the type of language that he'll use throughout his life. Is is that we've been slaves of Christ? He'll say, Um, "We're the ones who march in his army as he sort of has plundered our homeland and taken us into his homeland. We're captured by him." He has all these ways of sort of turning what's happening in the ancient world to an understanding of what God is doing in Jesus. And so Paul in this section is, is one, we talked about how reading Ephesians as scripture is one thing, but one of the challenges for us today is to read Ephesians as script, like as a way to live our lives. And certainly what Paul is doing in one through three is trying to remind you of who you are and what your role is to play in that script. He's telling you who and what you are. Now, one of the amazing parts about this section is that he doesn't really pay attention to the bad things that you might be doing. You can see that in his letter to the Corinthians. You can see that in his letter to some of the other churches, but he wants you in Ephesians to really believe the good things that God is doing and the good things that God sees you as. He's trying to upbuild an identity into your life. This is, I think, one of the challenges for us is to hear this identity. We're, we're very much a—Luther had this phrase that I'm simultaneously sinner and I'm simultaneously justified or brought into the family of God, which we know is true in a lot of ways, but we never really say, but I'm simultaneously more truly located in the family of God. I'm more truly located in what God is doing. I'm more truly located in God's plan that's been revealed now the, what he says, the apostles and the prophets, to bring two people together, to make one out of two divisive things. And that that passage that David read for us today from the book of Isaiah, that this is like he says that it wasn't made known before, but it has this this aspect of in the Old Testament of being hinted at. And so what's happening in that passage is is that God's holy mountain is coming up, and the nations are coming to it because they see the goodness of what's happening there. So much so that that when they come near it, that God becomes sort of the judge of all the disputes. And they take their instruments of war, their pruning hooks, their spears, and their swords, and beat them into instruments of gardening. There's a high transformation here. And so what's happening here in the Israelite imagination, let's say before Jesus, is that we someday will have God so present among us that the nations will stream to come to us be the end of war and conflict. And this is the glorious inheritance that we have for us in our God. That's still true, but what Paul and the Israelites didn't think of, and Paul, uh, more than anyone, is shocked by this, is what God did is left the holy mountain and went out to the Gentiles and sort of captured and brought them back. So instead of Israel becoming so great and so beautiful that they just come to it, what happened is, is God just said, I'm going to make all of the nations, all of the families of the earth this way as well. God sort of sort of leaves the mountain and brings the people to that point. Now, many of you might know this, but there's a, a friend of mine who's a part of our sort of connection here. He uh, gets instruments, he gets firearms donated, mainly handguns and AR-15s, and he goes around to towns. And he um, brings a, he didn't, he said, I'm gonna learn how to do this to make guns into gardening tools. He said that to somebody, and he had never done any blacksmith work in his entire life. But as God happens to do, God called his bluff and said, okay, I, he met a guy who was a blacksmith, was like, I'll train you. And so now he goes around throughout the country, particularly in areas that have sort of higher rates of violence. And he takes these these instruments of war and of killing and turns them into garden tools over a couple of days. And you get to you too can let's like sort of go out there with a hammer and bang on these things to help make them into, into something that's not used for violence anymore, made for life. Which is which is this interesting thing that happens from that Isaiah passage, right? Is that we we assume these things will be big and grand and great. We assume these things will be large. And yet what Paul's message to the Ephesians is, and we've mentioned this before, is that it will be the church that's the speaker of that, that's the carrier of this message, that it's the one who this is laid upon. And what he's saying about his time in prison is that there's this weakness that is becoming strength. That through his posture of becoming weak in so many ways, strength is becoming evident in it. That, that when all hope is lost, when it seems like there's no place else to go, when all the world is empty and darkness is closed in, Paul has this idea that's like that's when God's ready to work. And this, too, wouldn't be a shock to a close reader of the Bible. You have Abraham and Sarah, one of the first families called to be near this God, don't have any kids in a world that sort of revolved around you having kids. And they're 80 and 90. They're old people. God calls them. There's this amazing story where David fights Goliath, which I'm sure most people are familiar with. But when David comes out, they they say, this man, this man, this man, about Goliath and everybody else, which man will go fight him? And when David comes out, they say, this youngest son, implying child, this child is going to be the one that's going to go fight him? That God has this way Paul is is sort of laying out is that now that I'm in this weak spot, now that I'm captured and locked into prison, now is when God can do his work. And the logic for that, I think, is Paul's in the sense of that nobody else can say anything else. Like, So if the Israelites had their own Goliath, who was bigger or stronger, or let's say the same size, and that Goliath defeats the other Goliath, who gets the praise? Who gets the word of the good news? Well, we, we bred a Goliath, so probably his mom, his dad, uh, him, um, and then look, he won. That's awesome. Um, so all that, he gets, he gets the praise. But if God takes something weak, despised, something overlooked, and makes that into the, the utility of his victory, then who gets the praise? Something great is happening here. Something has been done here by God. And so Paul has this idea of that, while I'm here in this weakness spot, that, that that God can draw power out of this. And I think it's helpful to think about our lives or, or our marriages or our or, or parenting, and to think about what do postures of weakness do in those places. I mean, there's a chance, like right, for Paul, that you will just get run over, right? That if you take a posture of weakness and sort of conflict with your spouse and say, you know, what's going on here, how did I contribute to this? How is this partially me to blame? There's, there's a thinker I like who says, when, when you get to those spots, you have to want the truth more than you want to win. Because if you win all the time, the person you're married to becomes not much of a person. But what you have the potential to do is to want the truth, to want to find out. And what it takes sometimes is a person in the posture of weakness to sort of come to that place to say, look, we both think we're right. We both think we've done no wrong. And yet what it will take is for somebody to say, I think I might have done some wrong. I think it might have been in, in, in a spot where I did this wrong. And so we take these postures of weakness, and you can think of all different places beyond marriages that this is, is relevant for our lives. Again, there's always the risk that it won't work. We know that primarily because our God goes to a cross. Um, I always worry about people, when they're like, if you follow this advice from the Bible, it'll work for you. And it's like, the person who allegedly we believe followed it the closest ends up dead on a cross. So works is a relative term, right? Like, now he's resurrected, and that's what we have to await for in these these moments when we do this. But um, I wouldn't want to sell you on something where it's like, it'll work, and you think, I mean, You'll find peace and success in life and happiness, uh, but you'll find yourself drawn into the mystery of God. I think, even if it leads to greater suffering in the moment. And so, this is Paul's portion of this letter: is that he's displaying these things. And one of the things that he says there is that the church is going to teach these things; it's going to be the model of these things to the spiritual powers and realities. I mean, we've joked about this before, but like, not a great idea, God, but that's God's idea. is to take the church, which most of us have good and bad things to say about, and use that to teach this reality to the powers, to the authorities and to the rulers of the time. And not only that, he places it, he says these spiritual ones, which which Paul doesn't quite live in a collapsed universe the way that we do. We have, the um, uh, if we were to say kings and authorities, we'd be like governors, presidents, presidents, um, uh, prime ministers, those would be what we understand. And what Paul would say is sort of that, like, all of these are mirrors of divine realities, right? So the anger in, um, man, you're always, you don't want to say anything. That, you want people to hear what you say. You don't want to say something other than what you're saying. Um, let's take just a country that, that has lots of boiling up anger through its leader and through other things. What Paul would say is is that those are reflective of a deeper sort of spiritual power that's like that as well. They're reflective of of something beyond. It's something not not non-physical. It has physical presence in the world, but it also is, is sort of a larger sort of like reflection of that thing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And so when he says the church is going to be God's beachhead to do that, it's a phenomenal thing. That, that what the church is going to do in its common life together is almost be like the beachhead of God's activity in the world to reveal that another way is possible. To reveal another chance for this to happen. Now this is this is a small plug, which I'm not as good at as a preacher. Segway, Wednesday mornings at some time, I'd like to start a prayer group here. Paul goes into prayer right after that. But one of the things is, is that prayer groups in church history have had this this momentous sort of effect in time. That when Christians get together and pray, different things seem to happen. The most famous one, and this is the church modeling something to the world, one of the most famous ones of this is this group um, in in England that meets as just a bunch of more like men praying. And what happens is there, they begin a movement that sort of ends slavery in the West out of those walls. That started as a prayer meeting then The name you'd be familiar with from that is William Wilberforce, which is also sort of the root of sort of modern Westianism too in some ways. Is that like you have this movement that says that we won't buy and sell, sell people anymore because of, of slavery. And what happens is the church then becomes this, this thing is exactly what Paul's talking about here, the book of Isaiah's talking about here, is that it proclaims something that people seem to go, oh, that's the way it should be. That's the way in which we can move. And, and so these, these people begin that from there. So if you have a time that you would make it on Wednesday mornings, talk to me. Uh, if you have another time, you'd think. But I think for the church to become a place of prayer is where these doors open up. I have lots of ways in which I would think this church can model these things um, until we bring them in prayer. And no, like I'm not naturally a pious person. Um, uh, I'm not naturally the person who's like, let's pray about it. I'm the one who wants to go do stuff. So uh, when I say, I always tell people, you know, the person that you attack the most in your sermon first as a preacher is yourself. So I'm trying to motivate myself here for Wednesday morning prayer as much as, as I'm trying to motivate you guys. So, um, But that's something that we're going to begin to do. We'll move to the second half of what Paul says now. Um, also, the one other thing is he's... The ancient society is very honor and shame-based, so the fact that he's in prison would be something that might be shameful for the Ephesians. It might be something that brings them shame. What he says here at the end is that my sufferings are for your glory, is this idea that as I suffer these things, you're not experiencing shame, but you're experiencing glory. That this glory is something that's coming to you. And so he's even reversing a lot of the honor and shame sort of stereotypes of the time and bringing out something else. And this is sort of uh, one of the things that he does at the end of that section. The next section is where he drops on his knees and begins to pray for this church again. And as I've said, it's as much as it is written to the saints of Ephesus, it's written to the saints of Glenwood Springs and written to the saints of Defiance, that this is Paul's prayer for our church. He drops to his knees and he proclaims his prayer that joy read for us. For this reason I kneel before the Father from every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Stop right there for a second who on every family of heaven and earth derives its name. One of the things about these the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people being grafted into Israel, is that they would be more likely to say that Abraham's tribe and Israel derives its name from God, but not much more to say about the rest. Um, There are people who don't know. What Paul, being, being, I think, an excellent interpretation of the Jewish sort of line, is that all people derive their name from God, because God is the creator and sustainer of all things, that this is what God does. Now, my um, Greek is not good, um, but we've been doing Greek phrases through this. But it, the the Greek word he uses for father is pater, like, and that would be father. And the Greek word he uses for family is like pater families, like, so father, father families is sort of what he's saying. So, like, he is the father of all the other father families that he's the one who gives name to all of them. And so what Paul is beginning, first in this first part of this prayer, is to to pray for God who is the father of all these families, who gives all them the name on earth. And for what reason is that he is saying is that this mystery, this secret that he's been given, is meant to draw all them in. One of the reasons that shouldn't be a shock to us is because he's the father of all of them. And his goal is to bring all people into this knowledge and into this goodness. This is what Paul wants to do there. Then he says, I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, Inner being, I have in my translation, inner man, you might have in your translation. It's a very weird word, Um, to be strengthened in your inner person strengthening your inner personhood. It's also weirder in, in a certain Christian sense because we don't believe there's a lot like a more stronger mini-mat is not a good thing. And no more stronger any any inward mat math is not exactly what I should be praying for. But, but there's been a lot of research around this that suggests that inner man, you could capitalize the I and the N. This, the, that the inner man would be strengthened with you. And who is that? Well, Paul will say later in this letter, it is Christ who lives in you. That what he's praying is that Christ would be strengthened in you. There's, there's that's, that's the translation I think most people are leaning towards nowadays. There's a chance he's also saying that the arena of yourself would be strengthened and overcome with Christ. That the arena of all your emotions and all your knowledge that may not even be aware to you. This is the part I like about this, that you may not even know yourself very well would be somewhat transformed by who Christ is, that it would flood into that place. Uh, You could take it either way, um, but that's sort of what's going on there is he's praying that this might happen in them, that it would happen in their hearts through faith. Now, there's one other thing I want to say about this passage, and then we'll do, not for the sermon, I didn't lie, um, about this passage, is that what's going on in... in, um, uh this this idea in Ephesians, it's there's in Christ and then Christ in us, right? in um, the modern world for some reason seems to have predominantly done that Christ is in you. Have you invited Christ into your heart? Does Christ live in your heart? Does Christ uh, is Christ your friend? Is Christ near to you? Many of the hymns that we would sing that have come out of the modern world are also very much individual relationship to Christ. First off, as I've said before, almost all the yous in Scripture, particularly in this portion of Ephesians, that you would do these things are plural, right? Um, so as I've said, you know, y'all is not a biblical word. Apparently, they don't want to translate anything to y'all. But a lot of these are, y'all need this. Y'all do this. And not being said to myself, I almost sound weird like the same. So uh, forgive me. But he has these plural yous. So even when he says it's Christ in you, he's saying in all of you. But he also has this way, and we've talked about this in this letter, of really leaning heavy into a corporate identity outside of us in Christ. And for some reason, the modern church has not exhibited much interest in that. I think both are true, and we need both. But what I would say about this other one, this idea that Christ resides outside of us, that the Spirit is both coming in us and is active outside of us, is it actually gives us a stronger pull that's beyond ourselves. It gives us a stronger sort of realm to move into. And that's not something that we particularly like. Uh, We're a society that rebels against roles, that there might be a role for me to play in my life that's been predetermined, no thanks. Um, And almost like 90% of movies at one point were kind of about this. You're supposed to inherit the law firm. I don't want to, dad. And then he's an artist. And and it's every parent's worst nightmare too. or pastor, <laughs> too close to home now, um, uh, that like you want, you want them to do this, that we rebel against that. But what this corporate identity of being in Christ does is it actually pushes us out to that there might be something else we're supposed to be fulfilling. Christ is just this attachment that follows me around on the inside of my heart that says, good job. Um, that's not as great as having something that is propelling me into the world to do greater and greater works, to be going beyond myself so that's that's that part. Uh, and then I pray that you be rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long and how deep and high is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that may be you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Laying it on thick. Rooted and established in love is the one thing I want to talk about here, is that rooted and established have both these terms. The reason why I like them, and I mentioned this in, in uh, email this week, is rooted is an is a, uh, organic term. It's a farming term. It's that you'd be rooted in this way. Established is a building term in the, in the ancient society. That the terms he's using are for building and one for sort of like growing. The reason why I like both these terms is because it's not like you can go out and buy like we do in our society often being brooded and established in love, It pulls something that takes time. Building, building buildings takes time. Um, so does growing deep roots also takes time. Both of these processes take time. And what happens is that we, we sort of use these, these organic phrases, and Paul uses them often, most notably the fruits of the spirit, um, which is that, like, these are not just things that can go purchase. They're not just things that magically appear. They're part of growing deeper into something. They're part of building up in something. And that's part of why I like these phrases is because in an instant world, where like, um, man, I wanted to read the third Hunger Games book. Uh, all the bookstores were closed. And my dad was like, borrow my Kindle. Like, I got the book in 10 seconds. I was reading Um, In a world where we can do stuff like that, have so much access to stuff, what Paul is saying is that this life is more like this. Plant a seed and watch it grow roots. Have plans for a building and take the time to build it. This is what it means to be rooted in establishing God's love, and it's not something that instantaneously happens, but something as the church we are drawn deeper and deeper and further into. And so he ends with his doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is in work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. trying to think of the one last thing. One last thing. The final thing to end with today is he uses this phrase manifold wisdom. That's way more words than I thought it would be. Um, he, it's on the back of your bulletin. So if your eyes hurt looking at that, you look at the back of the bulletin. Uh, this is a quote from um, uh, Gregory of Nyssa's commentary on Song of Songs, um, in which he sort of grabs this phrase, manifold wisdom. And what he says, which is in this portion of Ephesians towards the start, that's what's going to be displayed to the world. Is what he says is, is that through creation, God made wisdom known. But in, in Gregory of Nyssa's idea, it's a singular sort of wisdom. But what happens in Christ is that that wisdom becomes sort of like um, fragmented like light through a diamond or something like that. It becomes expansive. And so then he takes a minute to define what that wisdom is. And this is the wisdom that I think we're going to find in the second half of Ephesians. So the first half, one through three, is really this who you are in Christ. The second half, he's going to talk about what does it mean to move into the life of Christ as a community, as a church. Here are the ways in which this will take root in the world. It's it's much more specific. But the last thing is this wisdom that he wants to make manifest through his church. And so this is what Gregory says that manifoldness of wisdom is, which consists in the knitting together of contraries through the church. The word has become flesh. How life is mingled with death. How by his own stripe our calamity is healed. How by the weakness of the cross, the power of the adversary is overthrown. How the invisible was real, revealed in flesh. How he redeemed the captive, being employed, the purchaser and the price, for he gave himself as a ransom to death on our account. How he died and did not depart from life. How he shared in the condition of a slave and remained in his kingly state. For all these things and whatever is like them are the multiform, not simple works of wisdom. And learning of them through the church, the friends of the bridegroom were heartened, grasping in the mystery another mark of the divine wisdom. He says that these opposites, this power and weakness, this sickness that heals, this becoming sort of the purchaser and the redeemer of what we've done, is making known that manifold myth wisdom, that the, God's ability to work through these things. And so what does the church model to the world how spears to become probing hooks, a weapons of war can become weapons of peace, of gardening, how the passage through life by him who went before us becomes the passage to life. This is the manifold witness as the church is called in to displaying to the nations and to the rulers and to the authorities. Let us pray. God, through this section, we are called into so many things. We are called into your wisdom. We are called into your love. We are called into your power. We are asked to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ. May here in this congregation and in our life together, we begin to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We may be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. And we may know that the good news to which you have called us, the life in which you have called us together to be your people here on earth. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen. The mercy ever songs of these be you Some of of of